0: This is the conference operator. Welcome to the IGM Financial First Quarter 2021 Earnings Results Call. As a reminder, all participants are in listen-only mode, and the conference is being recorded. After the presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions. To join the question queue, you may press star, then one, on your telephone keypad. Should you need assistance during the conference call, you may signal an operator by pressing star and zero. I would now like to turn the conference over to Keith Potter, Senior Vice President Finance. Please go ahead. Yeah,
1: thank you and good morning and welcome to IGM Financial's 2021 first quarter earnings call. Joining me on the call today are James O'Sullivan, President and CEO of IGM Financial, David Murchison, President and CEO of IG Wealth Management. We have Barry McInerney, President and CEO of McKinsey Investments and Luke Gould, executive vice president and cfo of igm financial before we get started i would like to draw your attention to our cautions concerning forward-looking statements on slide three of the presentation on slide four we summarize non-efferous measures used in this material on slide five we provide a list of documents that are available to the public on our website related to the first quarter results for igm financial and with that i'll turn it over to james o'sullivan
2: Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, Q1 2021 was a record-setting quarter for IGM. Uh, We achieved record assets under management and advisement in the quarter of $248.5 billion, up 3.6% in the quarter. We also achieved record-high total net flows of $2.2 billion, with strength from IG Wealth Management and record-high Q1 net sales at McKinsey. IGM's Q1 earnings per share were $0.85, cents, also a record high, up 25% from last year. IGM published its seventh annual sustainability report yesterday. We continue to focus on areas that matter most to our business and stakeholders. Finally, we're thrilled with the growth of Simple and the value that it has been creating for our shareholders. It's incredible, really, how much the company has grown since the fundraising round in October 2020. And as announced this past Monday, the value of our interest has grown by approximately $900 million, which is equal to $3.78 per IGM share pre-tax. I'll speak more to this uh, in a few moments. Turning to slide 8 on investment returns, we continue to see strong equity market increases across major indices, while fixed income returns turn negative with the sharp increase in interest rates experienced in the quarter. Overall, IGM's average client investment return was 2.7% in the first quarter and 4.4% year-to-date April 30, 2021. To this point, the market's have shrugged off the COVID third wave as governments continue to provide stimulus and market participants anticipate an economic rebound as vaccines roll out. While the pandemic is certainly not over as we get hit by the third wave here in Canada, there are reasons to be optimistic as more and more Canadians are vaccinated each day and we can envision getting back to something more normal in the near future. Turning to slide 9, Q1 long-term mutual fund net sales were $38.8 billion for the total industry and $18.9 billion for industry asset manager peers. This is the best fund industry Q1 net sales in Canadian history. Turning to slide 10 on IGM's results for the first quarter. Average assets under management and advisement of $243.9 billion increased $57.9 billion, or 31.1 percent year over year, including approximately $30 billion related to the acquisition of GLC and GreenChip, which closed in December of last year. Q1 2021 net earnings per share of $0.85. Cents is a record high first quarter result for IGM, representing a 25% increase relative to last year. Slide 11 highlights earnings contributions from each of our segments, where we have brought our disclosures down to the net earnings line as announced in March of this year. IGM's year-over-year increase in net earnings was driven by strong results within wealth management and exceptional growth at McKinsey and China AMC. Our proportionate share of Great West Life Co's earnings also increased meaningfully compared to Q1 2020. Turning to slide 12, IGM consolidated net flows were 2.2 billion during the first quarter. A record high result driven by impressive net flows at both IG Wealth, and McKinsey Investments. I believe this quarter's results demonstrate continued momentum in these businesses that Damon and Barry will speak to in greater detail in a few moments. As I mentioned, we released IGM's 2020 sustainability report yesterday, which can be found on the IGM financial website. The report includes comprehensive information for you and your colleagues and has been prepared in accordance with GRI standards. Within the report, we also provide an index aligned to SASB disclosures and a, greater, and, and, excuse me, and a TCFD report. We're focused on the material ESG topics that matter most to IGM and our stakeholders with our strategy focused on building financial confidence, growing sustainable investing, and accelerating diversity, equity, and inclusion in finance. In 2021, we are also focused on furthering our role in combating climate change and implementation of the TCFD recommendations. We're proud to be recognized at a leadership level for CDP for the fourth year in a row, and being named to Corporate Knights 2021 Global Global 100 Most Sustainable Organizations. I'm pleased to be leading a company where sustainability is integral to who we are, and we are continually evolving what we do to make the greatest impact for our company and our stakeholders. Turning to slide 14, Wealth Simple has experienced extraordinary growth over the past six months, with AUA increasing by 54 percent to 12.7 billion and clients growing more than twofold to over one million. The, the equity raise has demonstrated the value being created for shareholders, with IGM's interest valued at 1.45 billion dollars which is a compound annual return on investment of approximately 80% on our investment of $187 million. As part of the fundraising round, we will be participating in a secondary offering with proceeds of approximately $295 million pre-tax and will continue to be the largest shareholder with a 23% fully diluted interest valued at 1.15 billion dollars. Transaction accomplishes three key things. One, it includes a new funding round that will support Wealthsimple's strong momentum and growth. Two, it provides IGM the ability to monetize value for our shareholders while remaining a significant owner of Wealthsimple and continuing to support the company as it creates additional value. And three, voting control is maintained by the power group, which provides strategic flexibility. Proceeds from the transaction provide us with financial flexibility, or dry powder, which could be used for financially attractive acquisitions that bring new capabilities or access to distribution. We would also look to share buybacks in the context of our overall capital allocation priorities and opportunities. The growth and evolution of Wealthsimple and our other strategic investments further reinforces the importance of applying a sum-of-the-parts approach to valuing IGM. Luke will expand on this in his remarks, but first I will turn the call over to Damon to review IG Wealth's results.
3: Thank you, James. Turn to IG Wealth Management's highlights for the first quarter of 2021 on slide 16. AUA increased 3.6% during the quarter to $1.7 billion, driven by a combination of client investment returns of 2.6% and net inflows of $1 billion. Net flows were the best result in over two decades. We saw record high gross inflows with increased client productivity, which was driven by success in the massive fluid and high net worth segments of the market. And... Net sales into igm products were 713 million during the quarter a substantial improvement relative to net redemptions of 36 million dollars during q1 of last year i'll also discuss the strong performance of our, our profile fee-based program and the recent announced announced enhancements including the expanded use of private market investments and alternative investment strategies turn to slide 17. this highlights our net flow results at IGM over the past decade on the left and you can see the strong net flows over $1 billion in the quarter. The chart in the bottom left and on the right demonstrates how our momentum, which really started in early 2020, has continued into April, with both net flows and net sales improving relative to recent years. April is typically a seasonally slow month, but we had a record-breaking month this year. Growth inflows of over $1 billion is an all-time high for the month of April, and net inflows of $131 million is the best in 20 years and the third best all-time. Turn to slide 18, Q1 2021 gross inflows increased approximately 21% year-over-year year to 3.6 billion, the highest Q1 result in the history of the company. At the same time, our growth outflow rate improved from 11.2% to 10.2%. You can see the substantial improvement on net flows and net sales in the IG Wealth Management and McKenzie products. I'll de- take a little bit of a deep dive on this on the next slide, so let's turn there to slide 19. On our last call, I walked through some of the changing dynamics in IG's offering, our AUA and net flow flows growth, and how AUA transitions to AUM. Starting on the left part of this slide, in the second column, you can see that Q1 2021 net inflows of a billion dollars, which was comprised of $640, 649 million of cash and short-term savings and 365 million of third-party in-kind transfers from other dealers. In the third column. During the same time period, we have seen significant outflow from these categories, resulting in net sales into IG-managed solutions and McKinsey funds totaling $713 million. As we move forward, we expect deposit flows and in-kind transfers of third-party funds and securities from other dealers to continue to increase, driven by new client acquisition, increased share of roll-up from our existing clients, and recruitment of experienced industry advisors. Slowing to our managed solutions will also continue as consultants work with their clients to provide comprehensive financial planning and leverage the benefits of utilizing well-constructed managed solutions. Now let's turn to slide 20. I'll touch on the productivity of our consultant network and the key driving factors behind this trend. Both our consultant recruits and our experienced consultant practices delivered significant increases in productivity in Q1 relative to past years. As we mentioned on prior calls, the success of our consultants are having is related to new client acquisition within the massive high net segments of the market and increasing our share of assets with our existing clients this quarter we have some impressive stats to share with you in this area as we look at our growth inflows through a new lens on the right hand part of the slide inflows from households that have over a half a million dollars or more with up uh, with uh, with IG rose 30% year-over-year and 76% relative to 2019 and within these figures flows from new client acquisition nearly doubled over the past two years. Q1 2021 growth inflows from client relationships with less than $500,000 also increased by approximately 23% relative to two years ago, with the vast majority of this increase coming from the $100,000 to $500,000 mass affluent segment. These are great results for our consultant network, and I'm very proud of the progress we've made so far. But even with these results... We are clearly still building momentum here as we continue to invest in our platform, our people, and our capabilities. Now let's turn to slide 21. This slide highlights the recent enhancements to our iProfile private portfolios where we're building on historically strong performance. For context, iProfile includes a series of fee-based solutions with approximately $22 billion in AUM that is well positioned. It well positions us for the massive affluent and high net worth segments of the market. The performance of the iProfile program has been quite strong, but these assets have never been captured in our reporting performance information in the past. Starting in Q1, however, this changes, where iProfile performance is now being reported by Morningstar and included our MDNA. As of March 31st, 84% of the AUM in iProfile is rated four or five stars by Morningstar, and 100% is rated three stars or better. We've been continually stepping up our game as it relates to our product capabilities aimed at servicing the massive fluid and high-network segments of the market, and profile has been a key focus of ours. During the month of March, we announced the introduction of discretionary model portfolios that will be rebalanced as outlined in our investment policy statement, specific to each client's investment goal. At the same time, we've added six new private pools that bring new tools to the program, including expanded use of alternative investment strategies and private market investments. This slide highlights an example of one of the model portfolios. Building on this, in April, we introduced a new private equity mandate within the U.S. equity pool and announced commitments to Northleaf Capital Opportunities Fund. Going forward, the discretionary model portfolios will include active asset allocation, public equity, and fixed income securities, liquid alternatives, and a range of private market investments, including private real estate, private credit, and private equity. These solutions will continue to offer access to leading global asset managers like McKenzie Investments and Northleaf Capital Partners. Lastly, let's turn to slide 22. Having excellent products like iProfile is critical to our success, and these products are deployed with one goal in mind, to fulfill the financial plan tailored to meet the needs and the goals of each of our respective clients. As a reminder, at IG, we refer to our financial plans as IG Living Plans, and fulfilling an IG Living Plan requires more than just investment products. Our estate planning, mortgages, cash management, insurance products and services are equally important. Consultant and client usage of these products was another highlight for this quarter with our insurance volumes and mortgage fundings increasing 23% and 25% respectively from last year. In addition, all-in-one HELOC origination volumes were up 56%. You will continue to see an emphasis on, on, on these areas and growth in these areas uh, as a part of the business going forward. I'll now turn it over to Barry McInerney.
4: Thank you, Damon, and good morning, everyone. I'll begin my comments on McKenzie's Q1 results on slide 24. we reached a new record high total AUM of 191.6 billion at the end of the quarter, driven by strong returns for our clients and all-time high Q1 net sales of $1.5 billion. Our record net sales reflect both strong Canadian retail investment fund industry flows, which also broke records during the quarter, and our continued ability to win market share for our competitors. Q1 marked our 18th consecutive quarter of positive retail investment fund sales and the momentum continues to be broad based across asset classes and categories for both mutual funds and ETFs. We also achieved several important milestones to further build on the momentum of our sustainable investing offerings. I'll elaborate on a subsequent slide, along with a few highlights on our strategic relationship with Northleaf Capital Partners. Slide 25 highlights investment fund flows, which include adjustments for large fund allocation changes that can impact the comparability of results over time. The chart on the top left compares McKinsey's record-breaking quarter to the last decade. You can see that our 2021 net sales results are a multiple of prior years. This pace has continued into April, with record-high investment fund net sales of $539 million during the month and $6 billion on a 12-month trailing basis. 26 presents McKinsey's Q1 2021 operating results. Total mutual fund gross sales of $4.5 billion were up 23% year-over-year, driven by our retail business. McKinsey continues to gain market share, as demonstrated by our long-term investment fund net sales rate which was 8.1% at the end of April. In terms of Morningstar ratings, 49% of McKenzie's AUM were in four or five-star rated funds, and 15 of our top 20 funds are rated four or five-star for F-Series. Turning to slide 27, McKenzie's results in the retail channel have been very strong, with first-quarter investment fund net sales of $1.9 billion, including $1.6 from mutual funds and $300 million primarily from active and strategic beta ETFs. There are a few catalysts for our success. Mackenzie's top rated sales organization in the country, a wide-ranging suite of investment products and solutions supported by both strong performance and innovation. Of our top 20 net selling funds in Q1, five were launched within the last one to two and a half years, which means they did not yet have Morningstar ratings and a very favorable retail operating environment that has only amplified the opportunity for leading players like McKinsey. Slide 28 outlines the breadth of our retail net sales strength across our investment boutiques and the short-term investment performance dynamics that we've seen in recent months. After an extended period of outperformance of growth-oriented funds, we witnessed strategies which were, with value tilts, beginning to outperform. Our capabilities in the value space are represented by our Kundal and North American equity teams. While their value-oriented products lagged their growth peers previously, the recent shift in market dynamics has led to near-term outperformance by these two boutiques as measured by the six-month asset weighted percentiles. Of course, difficult to say where exactly markets go from here and whether value or growth will outperform in the near term. At McKinsey, we're focused on being Canada's preferred global asset management solutions provider and business partner. And our multi-investment boutique structure positions us well to have relevant and strong performing investment products through various market cycles. I would also note on this slide that we are seeing exceptional flows into sustainable investing, which leads us to our next slide. Slide 29 highlights McKenzie's five growth catalysts that are reshaping the global asset management industry. I'd like to highlight a few developments on the sustainable investing and private markets themes today. As we discussed on our last call, we acquired Greenship Financial during December, bringing in-house the strong capabilities behind our top performing environmental equity fund. As of March 31st, this team now matches over $1.4 billion. Building on this success, we launched the McKinsey Greenship Global Balanced Fund during April, the first environmentally themed balance fund available to Canadian retail advisors and investors. This fund brings green capabilities to the important balance category and leverages our fixed income team's established sustainable investing expertise. We also launched the McKinsey Global Sustainable Bond Fund, one of just a handful sustainable fixed income products available in Canada today. Also in the month of April, we established our second sustainability focused investment boutique this new boutique will be led by Andrew Simpson, who has 20 years of experience in investment management and has played a pioneering, pioneering role in the Canadian sustainable investing space. McKenzie's approach to sustainable investing is to provide Canadians with the opportunity to invest with impact through funds that are designed to generate long-term competitive returns while supporting positive ESG outcomes. We are working to strengthen the role of sustainability in our culture, corporate practices, and every investment decision we make. Our partnership and equity ownership in Northleaf represents a key part of our strategy in the alternatives and private investment markets. We are excited about the excellent fundraising of 1.5 billion achieved by Northleaf, the Northleaf team during the first quarter of this year. And during March, we officially launched our McKinsey private credit fund, which brings Northleaf's private credit capabilities to Canadian retail in a new and exciting way we have concrete plans to launch additional private markets products in the near term. I will now turn things
5: over to Luke. Great. Thanks Barry, morning everybody. So I'll turn to page 31 and all i would highlight on this slide is you'll see the 3.6% growth in assets under management and advisement during the first quarter, bringing our AUM&A up to $248.5 billion, driven by good investment returns as well as $2.2 billion in net flows, I'd also highlight that on Wednesday, we released our April results, and you can see that April had AUM&A up to $253.1 billion, another 2% increase, driven by record high April net flows of approximately $600 million, as well as continued market performance. At this level, I'd highlight we're about 3.8% above the average asset balance in Q1, so we have some, some good growth heading into the second qu- quarter when it comes to earnings and momentum. On page 32, you can see our EBIT and our EBIT margins by quarter. On the right, I'd highlight in the very right column that we had the full impact of the acquisitions of GLC in Q1 and GreenChip. And the GLC transaction closed on New Year's Eve and delivered us a net $30 billion, uh, if additional money to manage. That is at lower-weight average fees. And as a consequence, you can see that the weight average uh, margin declined during the quarter. You can see in the top right that we've normalized the margin to exclude the impact of the acquisition and the margin was 46 basis points on this basis and was in line with last year and was a stable trend. I'd also remind, as you can see in the bottom left, Q1s are seasonally high quarter for expenses, as promotional and processing expenses are higher as a result of the RSP season. I'd also remind that Q1 has seasonal weakness in revenues, as our fees are, are expressed as an annual percentage of assets, and we only have 90 days of revenue in this quarter. Training page 33, you can see our consultant statement of earnings and our 85% per share result, up 25% from last year and in line with Q4. I have a few quick points i highlight on this slide. First would be a reminder, if you look at the top row there, we've indicated the number of days in the period. As mentioned on the last slide, because February has less days, Q1 has a number of peculiarities that affect various line items, and I'm going to highlight uh, more of that on the coming slide. Uh, I would remind that revenues are accrued based upon number of days so we get 93 65 of the annual revenue rate during this quarter second if you look at the first highlight two in the middle of the page you'll see that business development expenses of 79 million are unchanged from last year and down nine million dollars from q4 i'd note that this is a bit below our four-year guidance due to timing of promotional expenses i'd also remind that q4 expenses were elevated by about 10 million dollars due to an increased in mckenzie sales compensation at the very end of the year as indicated last quarter, we reset the bar on this compensation every year, and we raised the bar for 2021. And as a result, the expense is running at much lower levels. I'd uh, I'd also remind that we've given the guidance, and you can find it in page uh, 42, that shows how this line is going to vary based upon sales activity and what you can expect if McKinsey continues to achieve the uh, the type of growth that it's putting on. Third. If you look at the second highlight two in the middle of the page, you'll see our consolidated operations and support expenses are up 11.4 million, or 5.9%. I remind you that this includes $6 million of impact from the GLC acquisition, and also includes 1.5 million in higher pension expense that we disclosed last quarter was coming on. Excluding these two items, we're up 2%, which is just a bit better than our full-year guidance that we provided. As you can see in call-out point two on the right, We're keeping our full-year expense guidance unchanged, and we've provided that guidance on Appendix Slide 43. Moving to Page 34, a few comments on our results by segment and by component. The first, as indicated by James, this is our first quarter reporting down to the net earnings line at the segment and component level. As mentioned to you on our March 11th call when we released this disclosure, we believe this change better reflects the business performance of the segments and enables use of PE and is also in, intends to encourage a sum of the parts approach to value, as well as making sure we're positioning the different businesses against appropriate global peer groups. I've also called out in point two a few noteworthy items. First is a reminder, as mentioned by James, that the Wealth Simple offering and revaluation of our stake is $1.5 billion in value. I'd remind you, record this investment as fair value for other comprehensive income, so there's no contribution to our earnings from Wealth Simple. Our secondary transaction will close in a few days and we'll receive our $295 million in proceeds and we'll continue to have a $1.2 billion stake in the company. I'd also highlight that China AMC's earnings are up 41% from last year, and we've highlighted here that they declared and we received in April our annual dividend, which was $26.8 million. This dividend doubled from last year as a result of the earnings growth, as well as an increased dividend payout rate from 40% to 65%. Look at the increase in net earnings by segment. I'd highlight the 49% growth in McKinsey's earnings, and this was up 42%, excluding the impact of acquisitions. As you saw in Barry's section, McKenzie looks poised to continue net selling in retail at a rate of over 10% of assets per year. There's a lot of operating leverage in this business, and we expect continued earnings growth at very healthy levels. And at the bottom right, we put a sticker on the value of these investments in, uh, in strategic investments at $4.2 billion. This is based on the trading value of Great West Coast shares, our entry-level P.E. of 17.5 times China asset management earnings, our purchase price for North and the carrying value of $1.5 billion on Simple and $291 million of excess capital that we hold in in very safe and liquid investments. Turn to page 35, we have reflected consensus analyst analyst earnings estimates at the time we had to press for IGM Financial of $3.81 for 2021 and we've shown the allocation of these earnings estimates by segmenting component. Much like we did on March 11th, we've taken the share price of $44.75 when we went to press on this deck and allocated it to these components by using our $4.2 billion assessment for strategic investments reviewed in the last slide and allocating the residual to IG McKinsey proportionate with their earnings. You can see at the bottom we've circled the implied PE of IG McKinsey, which on this basis is 8.4 times. And then we've compared this 8.4 times to the average multiples of global publicly traded large-cap wealth managers in the case of IG and asset managers in the case of McKinsey. We've disclosed that these peers are trading on average at multiples at 15 times earnings. And we obviously would encourage you to look at the strong momentum in IG and McKinsey's earnings that are being put on right now. To to page 36, just a few quick comments. First, you can see that advisory fee and product and program fee rates are in line with expectations and guidance. I would comment on our asset-based comp because of a peculiarity in how it's paid in the industry. Unlike our revenues, asset-based comp at IG McKenzie is paid at 1 12th the annualized rate each month. What this means is that if someone estimated this compensation by multiplying the annual rate by 90 days over 365 days, they'd understated this expense by about $2.7 million. We presented the rate here in both bases. As actually paid, you can see the rate increase increased by about 0.6 basis points, and we would expect the rate to be around 47 basis points for the remainder of the year. The reason for the slight increase in this line was there was a greater proportion of AUA subject to this compensation, which means there is less cash, less money market fund, and less time for savings account in the base, uh, which we don't pay as a base comp on. On page 37, You can see I use income statement with earnings of $110.5 million in the quarter. I'd make two comments. Uh, First, you can see in other financial planning revenues, we had an increase of 15.8% year-over-year, reflecting higher insurance and mortgage volumes, which Damon reviewed with you a few slides earlier. I'd remind you that insurance is seasonal, and our peak sales season is Q4. So we view this year-over-year growth in Q1 as very encouraging. And as Dana mentioned, our comprehensive financial plans are focused and we see significant opportunities for further increase the use of insurance, lending, and other banking products within our financial plans. Second, you can see our operations and support expenses are up 2% or $2 million from last year. This is right in line with our guidance point 0.5% growth plus the $1.5 million per quarter in pension expense that came on due to interest rate increases last year, in, uh, decreases last year. Uh, we've given a footnote at the bottom right, just, just to give you guidance going forward, that as a result of interest rate increases in the quarter, you'll see in our financial statements that the funded status of our pension improved by just over $100 million pre-tax in the first quarter. I'd let you know that under the accounting requirements, annual pension expense is set at the beginning of each year based upon the rates prevailing and assumptions prevailing at that point in time. But, but I would let you know that had the current rates been in effect at January 1st, our 2021 pension expense would have declined by a million dollars as opposed to increasing by 6.5 million. We point this out as this is obviously a tailwind for us moving beyond 2021 that you should be aware of. Moving to page 38, we presented the net asset management fee rates for McKinsey on the right-hand side. You can see the impact of the GLC acquisition coming on during the quarter and the 53 basis points is, uh, is right in line with expectations and guidance we've also included the fee rate excluding the impact of the acquisition of 68.7 basis points and i just highlight to you the rates down very slightly in the first quarter for a few of the same reasons discussed in the ig section Uh, first some dealers still continue to sell dsc and we had an increase in the payment of sales commissions and these are expenses incurred Uh, this is a two million dollar increase from q4 and is including this rate Uh, second as mentioned earlier the asset-based comp is paid at a quarter of the annual rate versus 90 over 365, and this was worth another basis point to decline. So, so very stable uh, fee rates, and, and and these fee rates are obviously being supported by the strength in retail. On page 39, you can see the McKinsey Income Statement, $48 million in net earnings was an increase of 49 percent from last year and 18 percent from last quarter. As you look through the percent changes, you'll see the operating leverage inherent in the business, given the extent of fixed expenses. In the second point, you can see that operations and support expenses increased by, eight from, by 8.8 million from last year. As guided last quarter, 6 million of the increase was the GLC and Greenship acquisitions. This does include purchase price amortization. Excluding this, the expense was up 3.7%, which is below our full-year guidance of 5%. We also mentioned earlier business development expenses of 20 million are at the same level as Q1 of 2020. And I'd remind you that on page 42 in the appendix, we've given guidance on how this line item will vary based upon different levels of retail sales activity. This concludes my comments. I'll uh, open up to questions.
0: Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. To join the question queue, you may press star, then 1 on your telephone keypad. You will hear a tone acknowledging your request. If you are using a speakerphone, please pick up your handset before pressing any keys. To withdraw your question, please press star then 2. To join the question queue, please press star then 1 now. Our first question comes from Nick Prieb of CIBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
6: Hi. Good morning. I um, just wanted to start with a question on investment performance. Uh, one of the things that stood out to me was I noticed the proportion of fund assets at McKinsey ranking above median on a trailing 12-month basis. Uh, move from the high 70% range in Q4 to 22% in Q1. I'm just wondering how I should in- interpret that. Like, was that, that Would that have been related to a particularly strong period of relative performance in Q1 2020 rolling off that DTM period, or uh, how would how would you attribute that sequential change?
4: Sure. Uh, great question, Nick, and you're right, actually, it's Barry. Um, so just quickly, so of the short-term performance, you're right, our Q1 2020 was exceptionally strong, and... We actually, with all of our boutiques collectively, we we probably performed best at McKenzie during down markets and choppy markets, which we certainly had in Q1 2020 and into, 20, into Q2, rather. Um, and so we had historically a uh, high you know, percentage of, of four and five-star AUM. It's Double, double-edged sword, obviously, because our, our AUM, our percentages might go up when the markets are choppy and downwards, and therefore consumer confidence is low, and therefore flows are low. And the markets are going one way as they have been mostly uh upwards we might lag a bit um with, with some of our performance but overall if you look at our four or five uh star percentages it's usually 40 to 60 percent in terms of aum over the long term and so we were at the high end you know the first couple of quarters last year and then we again we dropped off at q1 in 2020 we're down about 49 50 which is actually about average and it's 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 we're very comfortable with that that level um the, if, if I may, though, on, on the long-term number, um, the, the the percentage of five-star has actually remained relatively consistent the last several quarters. And as you know, the uh, the vast majority of proponents of our flows are going into our five-star funds and or and into our no-star funds. as I mentioned in, in my remarks because we've had success in launching some really attractive new products that have yet to garner a Morningstar star because they're less than three years old. And those flows have been very, very strong. Uh, you know, there's there's five or ten of them easily. The top couple, for instance, you probably know the Global Environmental by Green Ship and the Blue Waters Global Balance, they're both under three years old, and they are collectively up to about $2.3 billion in AUM. So obviously when they come on board with their stars, that numbers will go up. But but I think you've got it about right. The long term is um, where we think we are, roughly 46% at the mid, mid-range. Um, the five stars have held... The four stars have come off a bit, obviously, with the math bed, and, and someone like an Ivy form, a big fun. but it toggles between three and four star. It, it goes up to four or five star when, again, markets are down because it's a really downside risk-protective type of building block. And then they lag a bit when markets are up. So very, um, very explainable. And slide 28, if you recall, you see the, the all the boutiques that we have. These aren't all our boutiques, rather. These are the ones that sub Mackenzie Mutual Funds. And we've got probably the most... Broad array of, of styles, probably of any uh, manager in Canada. And a particular note on the left, as I mentioned, are value oriented. You can see those numbers where their performance has popped last six months, and where has been lagging, obviously, for quite some time as growth outperformed value. And then you see a growth oriented, which are still holding five star, amazing, particularly growth in Blue Water, but they have um, their performance uh, it, adhering to their style, which they have, has come off a bit last six months or so. So. We just rotate with advisors. We're starting to have a lot of discussions with advisors on value. Um, you know, most of these uh, teams are, are fundamental, but our quantitative team, you can see exceptional short-term performance they are coming back. So it's really an advantage to the to our model of multi-boutique. We're able to rotate different styles. But 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 really it's important that I stress this, that our wholesalers partner with advisors to help them build more enduring portfolios with building blocks, and not pushing the hot product. and We think all of these value, growth, quant, fundamental, emerging market, domestic, and now alts, all play in a, a really strong role collectively in a portfolio. Hope that answers your question, thank you.
6: Yeah, no, that's helpful, very thorough. Um, and then just switching gears on the, on the well simple financing round. Uh, Luke, I think you had alluded to the fact that the, the proceeds from the secondary offering that you participated in will give you greater financial flexibility, but are, are they earmarked for anything specific or you know, Are you comfortable holding a greater level of excess capital and balance sheet until you can find a, a suitable redeployment opportunity? That yeah, start, Nick? Yeah. It's,
2: uh, it's James. Go ahead, James. Um, they're not earmarked for anything uh, specific at this point. Uh, uh, Nick, M&A is, is, is clearly uh, a possibility, as are share buybacks. And as we've said previously on M&A, um, you know, we're attracted both to wealth management and to asset management. We we like wealth management because of its stability, the resiliency of the uh, the earnings profile. And any interest we had there would be, you know, that would be Canadian-based and it would be skewed to, to high net worth. On the asset management side, um, you know, Barry has spoken regularly about his five growth levers, uh, China, Alts, Retirement, ETFs, SRI. Those are areas of, uh, of potential interest. And on share buybacks, what, I, what I'd say is we view it as, you know, it's an important tool. Um, you know, if it's done properly, it can be a driver of EPS and a driver of ROE. And if we wanted to, we could file a normal course issuer bid uh, pretty quickly. So um, we don't have specific plans uh, uh, at this time. Uh, but we have a fair bit of financial capacity, and I think that 's important to point out between unallocated capital, which is pushing three hundred million before the secondary, the well simple proceeds, you know senior debt capacity and, and, and potentially you know other stakes that could be uh, that we have that could be monetized. Uh, I think we 've got a fair bit of dry powder and a lot of optionality in the, in, a, in a market that is and an economy uh, that is reflating.
6: Okay. Thanks for taking my questions.
0: Our next question comes from Gary Ho of Desjardins Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
7: Thanks, and uh, good morning. First question, uh, Barry, just want to go back to the next question on the performance. And you mentioned the shift from growth to, to value. You know, if that plays out, um, are you able to capture that, that churn? Um, just notice on, on slide 28, the performance, of your growth funds are quite a bit better than the value and do advisors look at the six months more or or more on, on the uh on the, on the three-year numbers
4: uh great question yeah so the way we present this with advisors and and more and more we're having some i think very thoughtful discussions with them in that when you're again building a a, a portfolio the a well-diversified portfolio you really should have a role of both value and growth now um as as i've mentioned in prior calls in canada we we don't have style specific universes in the united states the united states has style specific universes so you have a value universe a growth universe a core universe in Canada, it's sometimes difficult to put value in a portfolio when it's underperformed for 10 years because you're right; all the value managers usually one star. So because it's the growth, the style has been so pr- pronouncedly strong growth versus value, except of course last six months. But we've we we've, we've been we've been signaling this for a couple of years now, and um, to point to the fact that um, to take some take some um, gains off the table to rotate a bit back to value, to have a more diversified portfolio. It has been resonating. So uh, I think it's been an educational process for the last couple of years, and it might take another couple of quarters. But, uh, yes, to, to answer your question, uh, we, we think uh, we would benefit. There's, there's not, By the way, there's not very many value managers left. It's unfortunate. I've been through this for 25 years now when I was in the United States and the, you know, the high-tech boom of the late nineties where value was dead as they were declaring which is never dead it's a wonderful style it offsets uh, growth very well value is a little different nowadays than it was twenty years ago but um... i think that there's a lot of um... interest in discussions we've had we're having right now with advisable wholesalers say listen uh... they are listing the fact that they should rotate and and put some more into value and and have a nice balance between value and growth and we would actually uh, we believe we, we're well positioned. We have two very good value managers, and our Kundal and our North American uh, equity side. Not many, as I said, of the of the value managers left. Ours are good, very good. Stick their style, and uh, you should you should start to see some flows coming into the value side in Canada in short order. So we'll 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 see. But we're that that's again our portfolio construction led sales process. Here's your well diversified portfolio. Here's how you put these building blocks together. And there's good discussions going on right now, and and I I think you're right. You'll see some value flows come come forth shortly. You can see, for instance, the redemptions have really stopped. There's no redemptions right now that value. It's just more of a sales issue with with, uh, common North American equities, and we think this is going
7: to pop relatively soon. Thank you. Got it. Great. Thanks for the color. And the second question um, for, for James, just when I look at uh, slide 34, one of the bigger discrepancies in carrying value and fair value is your China AMC asset. Um, you know, we've seen the monetization, personal capital, well simple last week. <clears throat> uh, what alternatives are you looking at on, on the China AMC side?
2: Sure. Well, um, that's an investment we're proud of. Um, that investment reflects um, to be frank, 50 years of relationship building uh, in China. Um, and we very much view China AMC as a, as a best-in-class uh, asset. It's a, I think it's a, a clear leader uh, in their field. And so when you bear in mind that, that China represents, you know, the second-largest equity market uh, globally, the second-largest bond market uh, I think Canadians are going to want exposure as part of a globally diversified portfolio that you know satisfies their their uh, retirement needs. so um, for all of those reasons, um, we like the asset and we uh, we would uh, in the fullness of time um consider more if uh, if that opportunity presented itself.
7: okay. Um, and then my last question, uh, perhaps, for, for Luke, on slide 42, where you gave us the sensitivity of um, um, business development expense relative to McKenzie's growth sales, just curious, you know, your crystal ball, especially on the right bar uh, charts there, what are you accruing for given strong sales and how should we think about this number for the balance of the year?
5: Great question. And if if we continue putting this growth, there's going to be some variability from q ones level, and and so we'll be assessing each quarter. If if you look at what's being put on, uh, we have got April, we've now got a few days in May. We're heading to the right hand side of uh, of page 42 there. We're, with the, it's it's certainly in our sights that uh, full year retail net sales could be five billion or even beyond that as we continue to work through the year. And 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 this variability is is what you should expect.
7: And and how, how should we think about your accruing for that? Are you I guess for q1 are you accru- accruing more on the left-hand side and then as the year progresses you'll see the numbers and then you move more to the like it's gonna, is it going to be more kind of back end. Great, great
5: question great question for q1 you can think for accrual being at about the 2.5 billion dollar mark and as we continue to get to uh, get closer towards the 5 billion or beyond we'll be assessing every quarter but but what i what i wouldn't expect is something like the surprise we had in uh, q4 2020 where, where truly it was just remarkable in November and December, and, and we had to make a, a significant accrual to reflect the uh, the increased sales being put on. Th- this year is just stable, steady growth. We'll be assessing each quarter, and it should be pretty predictable this year.
7: That's helpful. That's I was looking for that 2.5 billion number. Okay, thank you. That's it for me. Yeah, you're welcome.
0: Our next question comes from Tom McKinnon of BMO Capital. Please go ahead
5: yeah
8: thanks very much uh, morning everyone
0: um, James you said in your uh, opening
8: remarks uh, that you were uh, uh, thrilled with the growth that you uh, saw at well simple so I guess the question is uh, if you're thrilled with something why do you sell it and then uh, um, and then if the if the if the answer is well that gives us flexibility to invest in uh, you know distribution capabilities and why not look to well simple you know it's had great growth in aUA so uh, maybe you can uh, uh, share with us uh you know what your thinking there was in terms of why you sold down on an, an investment that uh, uh, you um, are thrilled with
2: Well, we certainly are thrilled with it, and I think anyone in our position would be would be thrilled to. You know, have the, have the holding in that company that, uh, that we do, uh, Tom. Um, look at the growth in AUA. Look at the growth in clients. I mean, they have proven to be a remarkably nimble, remarkably agile, open-minded about how to compete digitally in financial services in Canada. And they've, I think they've just achieved a, an unprecedented uh, level of success for a company of their type. Uh, in this country, so you know that's the basis of being thrilled. And of course, the the, the, the mark on our balance sheet is, is, is I suppose the, the the ultimate reason to be thrilled because what was a 187 million dollar investment is now marked prior to the secondary to 1.45 billion. Um, look, as you know, so but you you ask a good question. If you're thrilled, why 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 sell? Um, and my answer would be prudence. Um, You know, it it just struck us as prudent to to take some money off the table. Uh, I spoke earlier to my view that uh, the world is reflating, um, that there is a high degree of confidence in boardrooms across this country and, uh, frankly, across North America, and i think we could be in for a period here where there is a very very significant level of uh, of uh a opportunity in wealth management and in asset management and so um you know the the proceeds of uh, of that sale after tax 260 million we add those to our unallocated capital and our senior debt capacity and uh, as I said, we've, we, this gives us dry powder, and it's going to give us I, – I, I don't worry about our ability to deploy capital. I think if our thesis is right, there's going to be an opportunity to deploy this and do some great things for our shareholders. So <laughs> we're deeply proud of Well Simple. We've taken a little bit of money off the table. We continue to be the largest shareholder. It continues to be controlled by the group. And that overall, Tom, just struck us as kind of the right balance. Um, but – yeah, we're thrilled
8: and we love it. At, to what extent has it ever uh, has it been? Uh, what do you get out of owning it? Is it just strictly a strategic investment, or uh, it's never really been integrated into your platform? Um, I mean, is it just do you just listen to secrets? Uh, you know, as a result of being on the board, um, and what what is where does this position where where does Well Simple fit long term and is it just nothing more than a strategic investment will it ever be integrated any in, to any extent
2: Yeah, it's a good question I'll tell you how I think of it uh, Tom um, I think about solving for the problem of incumbency I think about um, our management team and um, you know being very very busy day in day out focused on the business at hand what Wealth simple has done what Portage has done what what our fintech relationships generally have done is really helped our management team not just focus on the business at hand, but focus further out to horizon number one, focus further out still to horizon number two. It gives them relationships in the fintech community. It gives them dialogue in the fintech community. It's created very real partnership opportunities uh, with some of these uh, investee companies. And, as I said, the problem of incumbency is a very real one, and that is why do why do large older companies you know not see what's coming at them and um, the best way I think to solve for incumbency is to make sure that you have something like what we have which keeps our management team very much kind of current and very much on their front feet as they uh, look at how the industry uh, is going to evolve so that kind of solving for the problem of incumbency is is one of the things uh, I like most about it. Um, but there's also you know a lot of business done. I mean, we we are a major investment investor in uh, Conquest Financial Planning, and we're rapidly rolling that out across uh, IG Wealth. We've had numerous conversations with Coho. Barry has done a significant amount of business with uh, in the past with uh, with Wealth Simple, and I'll let him speak to that in a moment. But it is. I really uh, I really view that this this exposure to to fintech as really important in just making sure that uh, IGM is on its front feet and competitive. Barry, do you want to add some thoughts?
4: If if I could James, thanks just to amplify your first point and I'll speak on the management side second. On the first point, you you're right. I think we've always viewed wealth simple also is attracting um investors into the wealth ecosystem earlier I mean you've seen hundreds of thousands of new clients of wealth Simple come into the arguably the wealth ecosystem of Canada much earlier, earlier than they would or coming in at all because you wouldn't see the Millennials and uh, particular those in their 20s to, to come in and start to save it's wonderful that they're starting to save every month and and, and then that's we don't know the journey they take at some point. They they might need an advisor once once they hit a certain point in their career a Certain point in life So we think that that's always an advantage on the asset management side as James pointed out we uh, Mackenzie as you know, we've got um, our, our ETF uh, uh, Very proud of our ETF franchise. It's, uh It's hitting 10 billion probably next week So it's going very very fast and so we've been increasingly working with uh, well simple uh, with when they to design um, ETFs that they need um, that we can manufacture for them. So there's a really growing synergy even within IGM between um, Wealthsimple and Mackenzie. They're quite excited about it, actually because, as you know, a the, the lot, lot, lot of their new businesses within Simple are, are growing very fast. But that core um, financial plat- technology platform uh, is also growing 50% plus a year, and so that's another connection point, uh, Tom, between uh, IGM and within Wellsimple and McKinsey, that uh, you should see some future growth going forward.
0: Thanks for the color. Our next question comes from Jeff Kwan of RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead.
9: Hi, good morning. Um, My first question was maybe just tagging on some of these questions around uh, the fintech investments. And just was curious, I know that you mentioned – you know, stuff like COHO and Conquest, but uh, within the Portage Three uh, private equity fund, are there other investments that um, you find really interesting whether or not it's, you know, potentially very significant uh, financial return uh, type opportunity um, or also just ones that um, may eventually become um, an attractive entity that you would partner with and incorporate into um, some are within the IGM
5: business. I'll take that one. Uh, hey, Jeff. Jeff, that yeah. Luke? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Luke. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that there's, uh, there's a variety, and I think most of them right now are, are playing on James' James's theme of incumbency. It's those places where you've got a, a management team who's energized and focused uh, on a space that, that's, that's really uh, synergistic to the rest of what happens in IGM. So, there's a few of those on uh, on the mortgage uh, side of our business and elsewhere that we, we find very exciting. Um, there, there's nothing that's at the uh, the level of Well simple right now where where this is is a true success and something that's just got this you know clear clear momentum. but but I'd say broadly we're we're quite excited about the portage uh, ecosystem. We've just uh, been a lead uh, a lead investor in in fund three and uh, and as james says, uh, that that ecosystem opens a lot of doors for us to 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 sit at tables we wouldn't otherwise be at and to leverage management teams that are, that are top of their game and, and really bring capabilities to IGN that we wouldn't otherwise have.
9: Okay, thanks. Um, and just the other question I had was a bit more just bigger picture was, um, with respect to um, advisors in Canada and kind of the approach to managing client money, is there anything that you would say has, has kind of changed in the past decade or two with respect to the types of investment products um, they're choosing for their clients, um, you know, has things like having, you know, two major market downturns in, I guess, a little over a decade, um, whether or not it's the regulatory changes that we've seen um, kind of get, getting rolled out over the past decade, has that changed how they manage money and the implications for what that means uh, uh, for IG Wealth and McKinsey?
3: same I'll start this and I'm sure I'm very, very well, have some views. but I would say that um, that on the, on the whole um, advisors and, and how they view portfolio construction has changed simply because the amount of risk that you need to assume now to achieve the, the same type of return has uh, has tripled over the last 20 25 years and it's forced advisors to really look at, really their strategic asset allocation first. And making sure that, that they have the right setup, they have the right asset classes um, in, in involved in their portfolio construction and then that they have them at the, at the right percentages based off of what, the, what the, the client wants to to achieve. So from, a, from an IG perspective, uh, that's forced us, rightfully so, and I mentioned I-Profile during the presentation to, to really look and make sure that strategically we have an asset allocation that makes sense. And that we do look at all the opportunities out there. There are far more tools available to us than there were 10, 20 years ago. Uh, And it's incumbent on us looking at public, private, uh, you know, cap bias. You talk about value growth. You can go on and on and on about the opportunities out there. So that's why, you know, we really employ a, a, a model solution or a managed solution, uh, type of approach at uh, at IG, we take we take that off the hands of uh, of our advisors uh, because that's something that we are good at, and that we allow them to really focus on their relationship and making sure that not only are they offering the best risk adjusted returns for their clients, but they have enough time to really focus on the aspects of financial planning and investments are only one of the of the six aspects of financial planning.
4: You know, if I could add, I Damon spot on, Jeff. Um, you know, going forward, the advisors, to Damon's point, there are more and more tools in the toolkit that they can now access and they have to access. And it's it points to this whole uh, you know, democratization of, of these types of investment strategies that were solely the domain of the sophisticated institutional investors now now that are now coming to the advisor and investors, which is really exciting, but actually necessary, too, because, again, with low interest rate environment going forward, perhaps more muted equity, public equity returns going forward. You, you need you need more in the toolkit to put in that portfolio to get the risk-adjusted returns they need. And as was saying, you see the liquid alts are now in Canada, approved three years ago. Now the private alts are coming, uh, like us, for instance, with our OMS wrappers with Northleaf. Um, James mentioned China. China, the equity and fixed income markers weren't really accessible by Canadian investors even a couple of years ago. Now they are. We ourselves, McKenzie, as, as we already file, are launching uh, a, Chinese, uh, a Chinese fixed income mutual fund in June or July to complement our fast-growing equity, Chinese equity mutual fund. So um, it's really take a look at your traditional equity portfolio and extend it uh, into areas such as China and or uh, privates. Extend your fixed income into, uh, again, other types of EMD and Chinese um, fixed income and private credit now. Uh, extend, uh, you know, a, a James Point, reflation or inflationary, not that we're going to time that, but put some building blocks in there, like uh, infrastructure and REITs and gold and precious metals that uh, are natural inflation hedges. It's a real rethinking of the portfolio construction that, that we're fortunate enough to to help um, Damon and IG uh, McKenzie to do some of that for them. And, um, you know, that, that IG I uh, profile is just an institutional quality product. That's forward-looking as to what advisors need going forward, and and that's exactly what we're seeing more and more with McKinsey and our discussions with advisors. Thank you.
6: Great. Thanks.
0: Our next question comes from Graham Riding of TD Securities. Please go ahead.
10: Hi. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to... You know, touched on the the operating leverage this quarter and the lack thereof. Just nice lift in revenue quarter over quarter, but essentially, you know, the expense growth fully offset. Should you know, should we be not <clears throat> not interpreting this quarter as sort of indicative of the operating leverage within IGM? And is this you know, big picture? Was there some seasonality at, at, at play this quarter?
5: Thanks, Graham. Look, I'll take that one. So, so we we view there as being a tremendous operating leverage. Um, the best comparison is to q1 of last year earnings up, were up 26 percent uh, consolidated and, and at the uh, at the component level they're, they're up very, very very strong as well um i, I would i would highlight that uh, that there is seasonality and significant seasonality in our in our business and our expenses in particular because it's um because it's rsp season we've got amplified promotional and processing expenses every uh, q1 so any comparison to q4 is uh, is not going to be appropriate in the in, in the first quarter because of that seasonality, and, and, and we view there as being so much operating leverage, and that's what's led to Mackenzie's earnings being up, but you know over 40% uh, from last year when you exclude the acquisitions, as well as strong growth at IG, and that's what you should expect from these businesses going forward. There, there's there's a lot of fixed costs. We've given guidance for the full year, and, uh, and and yeah, up year over year, there's there's going to be tons of operating leverage going forward. And, uh, and yeah, Q1 is an odd one, not only because of amplified expenses, but because we have uh, we have fewer fewer days in the quarter. Um, and so I talked about the peculiarity between asset-based comp, which is you know one quarter of an annualized rate, uh, relative to our revenues, that are ninety three sixty-fifths of an annualized rate. So there's there's two seasonal headwinds. But yeah, we're so proud of the operating leverage put on, and uh, and we're so excited about the future. Okay, understood.
10: Um, jumping to uh, Northleaf, the contribution from Northleaf was lighter than expected. You know, from from my perspective, just um, is this quarter indicative of what we should expect from that um, that asset, or was there something sort of weighing on? Uh, I think it was just under a million. million you're on a quarter? you're on
5: a you're on a really good point. So it's uh, it's Luke again. the uh, The earnings were a bit light for uh, for, for Northleaf on two fronts. Um, one. The commitments, the new business being put on, is very strong. You saw Barry refer to the 1.5 billion in new commitments in the quarter. Um, that, that's 1.5 billion on a, on a base of 15 billion in AUM. So you can think of that as 10% growth in their business in the quarter alone. Uh, the way they, they earn their money, though, is uh, is most of it generates management fees when the money's invested. And uh, and, and right now at this time, they've they've. Been slower at putting the money to work than expected, given the markets that we're in and where, where some of the valuations are at. So that that did create a lag in uh, in revenue that will be put on as the commitments get put to work. And there was also a an accounting true up of about a million dollars that, uh, that that hampered them. That was just uh, a, again a true up in the results. So uh, we're, we're sticking consistent with our guidance for the full year of ten million dollars from uh, from Northleaf and uh, and and i i, I suggest given the growth they are putting on you know this this is going to be a, a very high growth business for us going forward
10: okay that's helpful and the 1.5 billion raise was uh uh you know igm part of that commitment at all or was this all third-party AUM?
5: it was substantially third parties and you can think of that 1.5 billion being about a billion dollars private equity uh, none of which would have come from igm and 250 million to each of, of infrastructure and private credit, and so we we've made active commitments at IG and uh, and McKinsey, but that's just just starting, and and we'll come on over time. Okay,
10: uh, uh, understood. And then just my last question, a bit of a follow on, but you talked about um, you know Wells Simple and there's some, I guess, M- McKinsey ETFs within. Within that distribution channel, is is there anything you can quantify there? Like how material is, Well Simple as a distribution channel for Mackenzie ETFs.
4: Hi, it's Barry again. The uh, so what we what our partnership uh, between McKenzie and and Well Simple actually has has, has in the past has helped them to uh, build Well Simple branded ETFs, and so um, there are two um, ESG. ETFs, Well Simple branded, have uh, been very, very successful in that channel given, you can imagine, with the demographics being mostly millennials. So I, I believe that's uh, at least over half a billion, if not more, between those two um, ETFs, maybe more 600, 600 or 700 million. Um, and then um, they're launching um, a uh, Sharia compliant ETF, Well Simple, that we manufactured for them. So the discussions are going on with them. To uh, a combination, uh, principally, it's been early days. Us helping them manufacture Well Simple brand ETFs, which essentially us as the manager to back office, as they're really McKenzie, but we brand them Well Simple for them. Uh, but also ongoing discussions with them, also with some of our new ETF launches um, at McKenzie to use uh, McKenzie ETFs in their portfolios. So it's a combination of both, and and we're actually quite excited by that uh, by that distribution channel. Uh, uh, with well, simple between the, uh, for the uh, McKinsey ETFs.
0: Thank you.
10: That's it for me. Thank you.
0: Our next question comes from Scott Chan of Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead.
8: Uh, good morning. Um, maybe sticking on that uh, ESG or sustainable theme, um, on the retail side, we've obviously seen robust growth and, and into the quarter, into Q1. Um, Barry, is, is there an opportunity to expand that, you know, that um, that theme into the institutional channel? Um, but I know that obviously that's been uh, very hot as well. And to my understanding, I don't think Greenship or, uh, I guess, McKenzie has any institutional assets within uh, that sustainability funds.
4: A great question. Absolutely. Um, as you know, the the interest uh, and the and the application of ESG actually began in the institutional marketplace. uh, And now it's coming very strongly to the retail marketplace here in in Canada, as well as the United States, as we anticipated, and it's coming very, very strongly. I'd like to speak to that in a moment. On the institutional side, though, yes, so we've been, um, you know, Green Chip, we onboarded, and and they're safely uh, um, at home at McKenzie's Boutique, and we've been actively um, now bringing them through our institutional sales opportunities uh, in Canada, U.S., and Europe and in actually in china surprisingly where esg is really taking off and we have a strong interest um in all those regions for uh green chips, um environmental equity global environmental equity product and strategy and you'll probably hear from us shortly in terms of some of the early successes but uh, we've been very very pleased that's a real huge door opener when you go to these institutional consultants and directly to these large pension plans and sovereign wealth funds to say we have a world-class environmental uh, equity uh, 14-year history, <laughs> uh, a successful history in terms of performance. And so that, that's been building very nicely. And that's why I was mentioning the institutional wins. They're lumpy. You know, they, they come in, uh, if you all recall, last April in 2020 when retail uh, was a little bumpy in Canada, we brought in over $2.5 billion on board at institutional wins. Since then, it's been a little slow, but that pipeline is back up again. And the two leaders for us, the pipeline, are green ships environmental equity product, as well as actually our emerging market product, uh, our quant team, which has outperformed the index the last year over a thousand basis points. Uh, so, you know, where we lean in where we need to, and uh, there's been really strong uh, um, interest there. And I, I, if I, now that you've asked about sustainability, this is really a game changer for the industry in Canada. Another game changer. Uh, there is remarkable interest in sustainability as as we know capital redeployed in this area tens of trillions of dollars over the coming uh decades and so we're we we've got the you know we launched the green chip balanced we launched a stable bond fund we have uh, that was the first balance environmental themed. and as i mentioned in my comments we hired one of the pioneers of esgsri investing in canada andrew simpson and you'll see his team and products being launched uh, over the next couple of quarters so uh, collectively we're we're working real hard in that area. Um, it's important uh, to us as a business, but it's important for the, the climate and the world that we get this right. And so we, we, we're, we're really embracing this hard and get in front of it as I think we did a couple of years ago for the advisors who want to continue to be in front of it. Thank you.
8: Thanks. And, uh, and maybe just on GLC, um, you know, that recently closed, is there any notable updates, um, you know, with that transaction since, uh, since you closed it?
4: Uh, great question. So, uh, yeah, early days, but uh, really can continue to be really excited and pleased. Uh, super, first of all, super team teams that we brought in in terms of adding to our investment talent across a lot of our boutiques and, and, and as I mentioned, uh, standing up a separate, large separate Canadian equity boutique um, that has institutional quality that early days. We're having good discussions uh, of Canadian institutional investors with that boutique. And then, of course, uh, probably the the, the the other two principal advantages of the GLCS the management GLC, acquisition, A, was the fact that uh, we McKenzie now are, are gainfully working closer with Canada's wealth business in Canada, which is growing very nicely that we can again look for ways that we can um, uh, grow that with new ideas and products. Uh, that, so those that is uh, early days going very well in terms of the dialogue and the planning. And then the Group Retirement uh, Marketplace, which is a growing marketplace in Canada, as we know. And we Mackenzie had de minimis exposure there prior to GLC. And now um, I would I would say that the um, reception has been very positive. Um, institution, institutional consultants are the intermediaries for a lot of those clients, but um, they've been fine with the transaction and uh, a little bit of a wait and see for a couple of quarters. But uh, that's gone very well, and we probably should be... Proactive in that in that channel over the over the coming quarters. Uh, once you know we, everything has been settled down in terms of uh, the changes to the organization that the investment consultants um, saw, and now they're fine with it. So uh, all green lights right now for us to get going on those two new channels. And uh, again, very happy with uh, the teams coming in and the new investment professionals. Uh, they're just just a terrific team, and they fit very nicely culturally into McKenzie. Right. Thank you very much. You're welcome.
0: Once again, if you have a question, please press star, then 1. Our next question comes from Jane Goyne of National Bank Financial. Please go ahead.
11: Yeah, thanks, and uh, good morning. Um, my question is on the uh, the high net worth uh, segment and, uh, and mass affluence segment and the disclosures around the iProfile managed solutions. Uh, looks like really solid performance. There is there uh, is there anything you can tell us about the the growth in in that high uh, profile solutions product uh, What's the uptake from uh, high net worth and mass affluent clients? Uh, in terms of the, the gross sales that they're generating and uh, and what are you expecting out of this, this product going forward?
3: Yeah, so the, the growth statement by the way the, the growth in the high profile uh, product has been substantial over the last uh, three or, or, or four years. Uh, our approach at uh, at IG is to to, is to really embrace uh, well constructed managed solutions. So we have uh, over eighty percent of our, our flows are directed there. Uh, we we foresee that continuing, and um, and for the, the massive fluid I network segment, uh, I profile, which is, is 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 really a, a makeup of, of three different types of um, of solutions. There's the I profile uh, pools. There's the iProfile profile portfolios, and then there's the new discretionary iProfile profile models. Um, so the, the 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 most money is in is in is in the pools, uh, well over 20 billion dollars. The portfolio started uh, last year, and we just uh, we're approaching 2 billion dollars in uh, in those, and then the discretionary model portfolios, as I said, uh, just started. So we expect that to to continue to to, to grow. Um, we you know we 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 fully. Um, have have made sure that we've designed these things to to be um, very receptive to uh, to those types of markets that we want to make sure that we we grow our our, um, our percentages in.
11: Great, and and is it, uh, is it new clients coming
3: to the
11: IG platform that are uh, that are driving that growth, or is it existing clients shifting some of their money from other uh, other funds after the uh, I profile?
3: It's actually both. Um, so we've, um, we've done a great job of, uh, of working with our existing clients and making sure that, uh, that they're aware of the benefits of, of leveraging iProfile. And we've, it's, it's one of the reasons why we've, we've got, uh, we're very excited about our increasing share of wallet with our existing clients. Uh, but it's also been a huge driver of our ability to, to bring in new clients to, uh, to the organization. So both share of wallet and new client uh, acquisition have been key for us, and they will continue to be key for us going forward, and then it's helped us bring new advisors, uh, advisors that are experienced in the industry that want to focus on financial planning and want to rely on well-constructed added solutions to, to join our firm as well.
11: Okay, yeah, that's great. Uh, shifting to the comments around, uh, around China and the attractiveness there and uh, recycling some of the capital from Simple is the... Is the view right now that the the most attractive option is the one you have with China AMC, or are there other opportunities in China that uh, that that could uh, we could see that capital get recycled
7: and deployed into?
2: Yeah, I I, I would I appreciate the question, but 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 I would say we we have not um, landed on what the optimal uh, deployment of uh, this dry powder is. Um, But I mean, China AMC, as I said, is an asset we uh, very much uh, like and would be open-minded to uh, owning more of. But I think, uh, as I said earlier, I think as the world reflates and and confidence in boardrooms builds and builds, um, we're going to see a very active M&A environment generally. And I I expect a lot of uh, wealth platforms and asset management platforms to potentially uh, become available. So I'm we are very open-minded as to um how this capital uh will get uh, will get deployed
11: okay great and then uh last one is just uh maybe more of a of you know, macro view uh industry as a whole is obviously doing very well from a net flow perspective uh and i think there's some underlying macro currents that are helping to drive that but uh you know, what are what are your overall views on uh, the sustainability of this uh, of record industry net flows? Um,
4: you know, at least over the near term. It's Barry. Great question. Um, so certainly we're we're seeing record flows in the industry, and um, that's a good thing, obviously for all of us, particularly I, IGM as as we gain market share. Um, it's is. We think this can go on for a little while now. I mean, this can't go on forever as, as trees can't grow in the sky, as they say. But if you see, to your point, the macro forces, um, first off, interest rates, uh, all the central banks are signaling, particularly in Canada, United States, and Europe, and elsewhere, interest rates will be low for, for quite a while, at least for a couple of years. And 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 the central banks, uh, as we know, are really focused on <coughs> that economic recovery and jobs and employment, probably more so than they ever have. And so they're going to be a little more accommodative, or patient, rather, to raising rates uh, until we see those signals come back. And even at James point, even reflation, as you know, the central banks have changed their posture on inflation, uh, not so much a target, but also more of an average. And so as, as if inflation does kick up transitory-wise above those targets, they'll, they'll again be patient with it uh, because, um, you know, just to ensure that economic recovery is there and the jobs are there. So interest rates are remaining low um the equity markets of course uh been (laughs) bolstered by macro forces with with fiscal stimulus but also obviously there's a a broader way of companies that are thriving in this environment some industries are still not and and that's unfortunate and as some folks are still um uh, disadvantaged with this COVID environment but an increasing amount of of companies are thriving and so the corporate earnings as you've probably seen coming in are, are strong and there's no reason why you've seen some of the large financial institutions in Canada and the United States point to the fact this might go on for a few years going forward. So when you have that environment, plus obviously uh, you know, the average citizen being a little more careful with their spending and therefore that money going into savings, that is a, that is a feral environment for wealth and asset management industries. And so we're not going to put a, 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 you know, a, a point of a prediction as to when that might subside. subside. But it's not a one-quarter phenomenon. Uh, this could go on for quite some time. So uh, we're, we're here very focused, all of us, just to take advantage of it, uh, gain market share in a growing market. That's a nice combination. Uh, but first and foremost, obviously, just focus on providing great, great advice and great returns for our clients. But, uh, but great question. Don't have the crystal ball, but it's, uh, it's, it's certainly a robust environment right now for the industry. Thank you very much.
0: This concludes the question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to Mr. Potter for any closing remarks.
1: Yeah, thank you everyone for joining uh, the call today. We uh, certainly appreciate the broad set of uh, engaging questions. And uh, with that, I hope you all have a good weekend, and uh, we'll end the call. Thank you.
0: This concludes today's conference call. You may disconnect your lines. Thank you for participating, and have a pleasant day.